Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, I recently uh, watched the movie Unbroken. Um, Great movie if you haven't seen it. Highly recommend. Uh, It depicts the extraordinary life of Louis Zamperini, who was Olympic track star turned miraculous plane crash survivor turned World War II uh, prisoner of war camp survivor. And that's a true and a truly amazing story filled with all sorts of uh, important life lessons. But perhaps the most profound for me Uh, personally, was the way in which God used the very thing that almost ruined Louis's life to rescue him time and time again, namely his unbreakability. It was his his fierce stubbornness as a wayward teenager. It didn't matter how hard or how many times his father beat him, spanked him. He just kept stealing, drinking, smoking, fighting— But after his older brother Pete finally got through to him, Louis had a change of heart, turned his life around. It was that same unbreakability, never give up attitude that propelled him to run harder, to survive longer, to endure harsher beatings and torture at the hands of his Japanese detainers. And that same moral of the story is the same lesson that's going to be on display for us in Paul's second missionary journey that we're going to begin together this morning in Acts chapters 15 and 16, namely that God turns the obstacles in our lives into opportunities. This is our main idea the next couple chapters. God turns our obstacles into opportunities. And we're going to see this recurring motif run throughout four separate stories this morning, four short pericopes, as they're called, distinct narrative units in the text, all unified by one common theme. Again, it's the same theme that dominated Paul's first missionary journey back in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. If you weren't here, we'll quickly recap what we gleaned from those two sermons and two chapters, each of which was also comprised of four sequential stops along the journey. So in chapter 13, while Paul was in Paphos, we learned that when the gospel is contested, we are to contend for the faith. Then they stopped in Perga, and we learned when the gospel is abandoned, we abide in the faith. Then in Pisidian Antioch, we learned that when the gospel is rejected, we remind others of the need for faith. And in all Pamphylia and Galatia, we learned that when the gospel is persecuted, we are to persevere in the faith. Similarly, in chapter 14 in Iconium, the message was when we encounter hostility, we hold on. And Lystra, when we are misunderstood, we make the gospel clear. And then just outside Lystra, when we suffer, we we stand firm. And finally, on Paul and Barnabas' return journey home, chapter 14, when gospel growth is cultivated, we celebrate and we continue in the work of ministry. So we've witnessed God turning obstacles into opportunities all throughout the book of Acts, really, and especially throughout Paul's missionary journeys thus far, 
his first missionary journey, and in many ways here, his second journey that we're going to be studying over the next three Sundays together is just a continuation of that theme, hence my title, More Lessons from the Road. And so it, it could be tempting to kind of tune Paul out here. Okay, we get it. But we also know this biblical principle that the more God repeats something in his word, the more important it is for us to stop and really listen and let the message sink in, not just from one ear to the next, but into our hearts. And so that's what I want to invite you to do this morning is to stop and listen and hear and apply. And so I invite you to, to do that now and to stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> We're going to be in Acts 15, pick it up in verse 36, where we left off, and we'll go through Acts chapter 16, verse 15. We'd love to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, we have Bibles at the info bar we'd love to give you as well. Hear the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Chapter 16 now. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. 
and she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you again this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, a guide for right living. But Father, even more than that, this is the good news, the message of salvation when we don't live as we ought to. This is the message of hope for those of us who might come this morning from with, with hearts full of despair, perhaps, with heavy hearts. God, I don't know what's on each of the hearts in this room this morning, but you do. You know possibly the, the hurts, the, the obstacles that we face this morning, but you also know better than anyone how to overcome them and to turn them and transform them into opportunities to bless us, and to give us a hope and a future. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that. Most of all, that you would show us Jesus this morning, our ultimate hope, the ultimate example of your having turned an obstacle, the cross, into an opportunity, our salvation. Would you show us Jesus in your word this morning? For our good and for your glory, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So we read four scenes here in four different cities, four stops along Paul's journey in which we're going to see four examples of of God's redemptive power to turn our obstacles into gospel opportunities. The first is in Antioch, a city they are sent and launched from. We see God turn division into multiplication. Division to multiplication. This is not exactly the start that you would hope for on a mission trip. They really uh, come limping out of the gate here in verses 36 through 41. Paul and Barnabas, this missionary dream team, from their first trip in chapters 13 and 14, Paul was the exhorter, Barnabas the encourager. Paul was the preacher, Barnabas the pastor. They complimented one another's giftedness perfectly, and they're ready to do it again, to return and to check in on their new converts in all the previous cities, because unlike a lot of churches today, they know it's not about how many churches you can plant. Anybody can plant a church. We could plant three churches tomorrow. It's about strengthening. It's about planting healthy, sustainable, thriving churches, supporting and building them up, existing churches. And so they agree on that much, but they don't agree on whether or not to take John Mark with them. Again, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. They can't agree on whether or not to give him a second chance. You might remember that Mark had abandoned them on their first trip while they were in the city of Perga. But now Barnabas, his cousin, is ready to forgive him, give him a second chance while Paul is not. And so, verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement. They separated from each other. Now, we shouldn't rush to the silver lining here, how God's redemption, how God used it in a beautiful way. We should feel the weight of this painful separation for both men, brothers in Christ, friend that's closer than a brother. That's what they were for one another. Commentator Kent Hughes remarks that sharing not only wounds from their first trip, but vision for their second one. They were no doubt soul brothers, This is the last glimpse that Luke gives us of Barnabas, one of the noblest figures in the whole New Testament. In leaving Paul, Barnabas was separating himself from the greatest servant of Christ of all time. 
and Paul was losing the man to whom he owed more than any other human being. The omission of a harmonious conclusion here indicates the unstated but undeniable failure of two of the greatest souls the church has ever known. It's a failure, but I think, now we can paint the silver lining, I think we can draw three hopeful takeaways from their failure. Number one, no one is perfect. No one is perfect. Even the apostles feuded and they fell short. Sometimes I think it can be tempting to read words of Scripture, the lofty callings of the Bible, and think, well, that's easy for them to say. That's easy for Paul to write. I mean, he's under the direct inspiration of God. But while Paul may have been inspired in authoring Scripture, we know he was no more inspired in living it out than you and I are today. We've got the very same Holy Spirit living inside us that Paul had, that Barnabas had. And yet, how often, like them, do we forget it? Do we neglect it? Do we quench the Spirit? And do we live unto the flesh instead of the Spirit, just like they did? Remember, Paul is also the one who wrote, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Wretched man that I am. Paul was a sinner. Any of you ever messed up a relationship big time? Perhaps with someone significant from your past who is no longer a part of your present. And maybe you're a big part of the reason why. If so, you can take heart this morning knowing that at least you're in good company. Paul did too. Barnabas did too. And yet God works through our fallouts. He works in spite of our failures. It doesn't excuse any sin that might be on our part, any quarreling or dividing, refusing to reconcile. God still calls us, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And yet we have to realize that it doesn't always depend on us, does it? We can't control other people's actions, other people's openness to repentance and reconciliation. And so sometimes we have to simply trust, fall back on the hope of the gospel that despite any rift, any rifts in our horizontal relationships, no broken earthly relationships can ever cause a rift in our most important vertical relationship with the Father. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. But that leads us to a second point and a question here. Who was in the right? Was it Paul or Barnabas? The thinker or the feeler? Wisdom or compassion? Was Paul right to show Mark justice or was Barnabas right to show him mercy? You know, we're, we're clearly called to forgive, but forgiving doesn't always mean forgetting, does it? Paul wasn't ready to forget yet. Mark's betrayal, betrayal of trust. And there's wisdom in that. And the church certainly thought so. In verse 40, we hear they commended Paul's choice of Silas instead. church seems to take Paul's side. And yet, as Kent Hughes puts it, our judgment goes with Paul, but our hearts go with Barnabas. Paul was right to exercise discernment here, and yet it's never wrong to exercise forgiveness, is it? 
And so, a second point we would do well to remember is that when we disagree, especially with fellow Spirit-filled brothers and sisters, we should remember that the truth is almost always somewhere in the middle. Right? That none of us has a monopoly on the truth. None of us in this room is inerrant. The Scriptures may be inerrant, but even your interpretation, your reading of them, your application of them isn't. Right? And so, we need to, to approach Scripture and approach life in our relationships with a healthy dose of humility. And Proverbs twelve fifteen reminds us, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Fools insist, I, I'm right, you're wrong. But a wise man listens, open to correction. Thirdly, though, and most importantly here, is the lesson, the main lesson, that God really does redeem. God makes up for he offsets paul and barnabas's failure he overcomes it and uses it what looks like nothing but disheartening division from a human perspective becomes marvelous multiplication in the hands of an omnipotent god one missionary team becomes two one missionary route instead of churches reached becomes two routes Paul, uh, sorry, Barnabas and Mark, they head west to Cyprus, but Paul and Silas head north to Cilicia. This is twice the opportunity for church planning, church strengthening. Sometimes I wonder, you know, <clears throat> what Paul would think if Paul could have hopped in a time machine and come and checked in on our churches today. How much explaining it would take for him to understand why there's one church here and another church literally across the highway right there. We could throw a stone and hit West County Assembly of God, right? See, we're Baptist, Paul, but they're Pentecostal. And there's also, by the way, Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and Catholics. And you know what, Paul, you should probably just take a seat. This could be a while. There's over 45,000 denominations worldwide. And I typically envision Paul responding to that by shaking his head and getting upset and replying, what part of 1 Corinthians 1.10 did y'all not understand? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. But reading Acts 15 this week, studying it, made me wonder if perhaps Paul would actually understand have a measure of understanding and, and grace for us today. And maybe be more sad than he is mad. And he might say something like, you know what, it really is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. And yet, praise God, that he can use even our divisions to proliferate the spread of his gospel. Tell me, does the church across the, what did you call it, highway? Do they reach people that your church isn't able to reach? And they do. Praise God for them and their ministry. We should pray for our fellow brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters all around the town. Number two, in Lystra, God turns the obstacle of exclusion into an opportunity for gospel inclusion. Exclusion becomes inclusion. In, Paul, in God's hands. We're in chapter 16 now. We're in the city of Lystra. Here's a map if you uh, brought your uh, 
binoculars or magnifying glass, glasses or whatever. Um, I'll try and zoom in maybe on the PowerPoint like going forward so that you can actually read where we are. But Lystra is uh, right there in Derby and green in the middle in Galatia. First kind of couple stops there. And this is where Paul and Silas meet a young believer named Timothy who was well spoken of by the brothers. Timothy had probably come to faith along with his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who we know from 2 Timothy 1.5, during Paul's first missionary journey about two years prior, perhaps even as a result of Paul's having been stoned in the city of Lystra in chapter 14, you recall, just as Paul never himself never quite got over Stephen's stoning in Jerusalem back in chapter 7 and always stuck with him as he was collecting the, the persecutor's coats at his feet there. Perhaps Timothy just couldn't shake the image of this half-dead man, Paul, getting up, dragging himself half-dead and, and limping on to the next town to just keep on sharing the same gospel that kept getting him stoned and beaten and imprisoned because Jesus was worth it. And Timothy concluded, I, I talked to the guy, he seemed pretty reasonable, He's not out of his mind. He's not insane. So the only possible explanation is that maybe the news he's sharing is true. Maybe this guy Jesus really did die for my sin and then come back from the dead three days later. And he offers me a new life now. But in any case, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany them now that Timothy is, is a brother in the faith. But there's a problem. See, Eunice was Jewish, his mother, but Timothy's unnamed father was a Greek, a Gentile, we hear. And Interestingly, in contemporary Judaism today, a person's ethnic Jew Jewishness is typically determined by the mother's status. But in the Bible, the line was always traced through the father, a principle known as patrilineal descent. And so a strict first century Jew would not have considered Timothy to be a true Jew. And apparently he was even denied circumcision at birth, we know. And yet, in every other respect, Timothy had been raised as a devout Jew by his mother and grandmother. And so we know this from 2 Timothy 3.15. reports that from childhood, Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Jewish scriptures, Old Testament. And so he was definitely an outsider as far as the Gentiles were concerned. And so here you've got poor Timothy, who's got a foot in, one foot in both worlds. And yet, sadly, that made him an outcast to both the Jew and the Gentile. I sometimes fear that my son will experience the same kind of marginalization. He's a black boy being raised in about as white a family. I mean, I, I like Christian hip-hop, but uh, MBA, but I mean, about as white a family and a, and a white a neighborhood and as white a church. I mean, you look around as you can get. He's going to have one foot in both worlds, but I fear that there will also be times that because of that, he won't feel completely accepted in either. But watch what Paul does here in verse 3. He took Timothy and he circumcised him because of the Jews. Now, at first glance, Paul appears to be self-contradictory here. After all, Paul was the one who was arguing last week in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council that it's by grace alone that a person is saved, not by works of the Old Testament law like circumcision. Paul was the one who would later write to the church in Galatia that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. But the key word there is you who would be 
justified. It's all about your motivation. See, Paul warns the Galatian Christians against circumcision because he knows that they're pursuing it for the wrong reason, out of a bad theology, a wrong-headed obedience to the Judaizers, the circumcision party who were still teaching, even after the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council, they disagreed, they were still teaching circumcision is what saved you, it's what justified you, it's necessary for salvation. It's what made you right with God and procured your inclusion in God's family. Paul says, listen, if that's your motivation, then you've lost Christ and his grace altogether. Don't get circumcised. But Paul circumcises Timothy here, not for his inclusion into the church, for his salvation. He's already been saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, but rather for Timothy's inclusion in its commission. Not in the church, but inclusion in the commission. Paul did it because of the Jews who were in those places we hear. Paul knew that they were never going to fully accept Timothy as long as he had a foreskin. And more importantly, that they would never accept Timothy's gospel, his Savior, his Jesus. And so Paul concludes, though circumcision counts for nothing as far as Timothy's salvation is concerned, if it's a stumbling block to the salvation of these other Jews in town, if his circumcision might mean their inclusion in Christ, not to mention Timothy's inclusion in Christ's mission, if it's going to make Timothy more effective in, in fulfilling the mission that God has saved him for, saved him to serve, called him to, then it's a small price to pay. And isn't that just like God to pick the guy who was excluded by everyone to preach the message of Christ's radical inclusion of everyone. To use Timothy to deliver God's saving message to the very folks who once excluded him. Verse 4 here says, they went on their way through the cities, delivering to them the decision reached in Jerusalem, i.e. the decision from last week at the Jerusalem Council that following the law can't save you. Circumcision is nothing. Only faith in Jesus can save you. <clears throat> what's the practical application here for us perhaps some of you this morning have suffered exclusion at the hand of a particular community but what if that is precisely the community that God wants to use you to reach to preach inclusion to because who needs to understand the importance of inclusion more than the excluder what if God wants to give my son a platform to open the eyes of white folks around him to the evils of racism in a way that I never could as a white man? Happy June, Juneteenth, by the way. What if God wants to give me an opportunity to witness to the lost country club folks that I was blasting in last week's sermon in a way that those inside that community aren't able to, right? Because if you want to know about the water, you don't ask the fish. Uh, who has God given you the opportunity to reach with the gospel, a unique ministry with? I think of so many of you here, just to name a, a, another couple examples, so many of you here at West Hills who grew up in the Catholic Church. Who better to reach the masses of people growing disillusioned with the empty ritualism and the works-based theology of the Catholic Church than former Catholics? Or I think of 
Our couple here who came out of Christian science, who better to help free people from that twisted version of the prosperity gospel than those who have once suffered under its weight before they met the real Jesus? You may feel excluded from that community now. God's closed the door ministry to them. Persona non grata at your old parish, at your former reading room. But maybe that's what makes you exactly the person that someone from that community needs. To hear firsthand that there really is life. There is life abundant outside of Catholicism or Christian science or the country club. And the point here about young Timothy's circumcision is just this. Listen, if you've got to carry a rosary around or a copy of Science and Health, or even if you've got to wear a coat and tie to reach those people, then just do it. It's worth it for the sake of the gospel. Number three, in Troas now, verses 6 through 10, God uses the obstacle of a closed door in order to open a window of opportunity for the gospel instead. And God actually closes two doors here. First, we hear in verse 6 that Paul and Silas and Timothy were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, that is not the entire continent of Asia that you and I might think of today, but rather a smaller province therein. Again, you can see on the map that big red uh, territory, the top of the screen is Asia. You see Paul's journey in the red arrow top along north, the, the boundary there of Asia with Bithynia and Galatia. So he was seeking to, to travel south into all these influential cities in Asia and preach the gospel, but God forbid, the Holy Spirit forbid him from doing that. And then we read on and discover in verse 7 that when they had come up to Mycia, that's the top left-hand kind of corner of Asia there, general territory, none of these boundaries were super clearly defined back then. But when they get to Mycia, they attempted to go north into Bithynia and Pontus there. And yet the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them there either. We, what's going on here? We don't know exactly how they were forbidden. Tony Marita points out, did they receive a divine vision? Did the Lord withdraw their sense of peace? Did they experience transportation difficulties? We just don't know. But many commentators will speculate illness. Interestingly, because verse 10 here is the first time in all of Acts that we see Luke, the author of Acts, use the first person pronoun we. Up until now, it's been you know, Paul and Barnabas, they did this. Paul and Silas, they did this. This is the first time we hear immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. So apparently now uh, Luke is joining the, the, the mission trip. And we know that Luke was a physician by trade, and so the theory is that perhaps Paul got sick. You know, we know Paul was prone to illness, and which could have prevented him from heading south into Asia, north into Bithynia. Instead, God funneled him west to meet up with Luke, who served Paul not only medically, but missionally in the years to come by joining their team and personally chronicling all their adventures together, writing them down. That's plausible. All we really know for sure is that God closes two doors here to the north and to the south, which makes verse nine, verses 9 and 10 pretty humorous to me. Because they had traveled from the east, doors closed to the north and south, so they just keep heading west until they hit Troas on the coast. So the 
northwesternmost point, basically, of, of Asia, of Mycia there, that you see, Troas, on the, on the coast. And uh, we're not exactly sure how long they stayed there in Troas, but uh, presumably they, it seems like they were praying. <laughs> they, were, they were staying there, just be, be, we don't know what to do. They're praying, they're asking God, God, would you open a door for us to head south and preach in Asia or north into Bithynia? Before finally, Paul receives this vision in the night of a Macedonian, Macedonian man urging him, saying, come west to Macedonia and help us. Preach to us. And then I love verse 10 here. And when Paul had seen the vision, we went, concluding, concluding that God must be calling us to preach the gospel there. The verb concluding there, symbibazontes, means putting the pieces together. And so the picture we get is like Paul had to solve some great puzzle here. You know, they, they came from the east, can't go north, can't go south. Where should we go? And it still took a supernatural vision and all of Paul's power of deductive reasoning to convince him to head west to Macedonia. It's kind of humorous, but before we laugh at him, we need to take a hard look in the mirror, don't we? Because how many times have you and I prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God, God, would you please open a door to this new position at work that I'm interested in? Would you open a door to this new guy, this new gal I'm interested in dating? open a door to children. We're desperate to, to get pregnant. And we tell ourselves that God must not be answering our prayers because we haven't received that promotion, received that, that boyfriend, that baby. When it's quite possible that God has, in fact, answered our prayer, He's just answering no. Or at least not yet. He's answering with a closed door that we just don't want to see. We just don't want to accept as a closed door because we lack the eyes of faith to see things from God's perspective, to see all that God can see. Maybe that promotion would lead to pride. Maybe that boyfriend would lead to lust. Maybe that child would lead to idolatry, loving something else more than Jesus. Or maybe God's closing a door simply because he's trying to open a window instead. God has got an even better plan that you wouldn't have even thought of. He doesn't want you to settle for marginal improvements in a vocation that you're no longer that passionate about. He's trying to get you to take a step of faith and change careers altogether. He doesn't want you with that guy or that gal because maybe he's calling you to singleness so you can focus on your relationship with him, grow in, in, in your, your love with him. Or maybe he's just got somebody even better out there that he's preparing you for. Maybe God's calling you to foster or to adopt. And you keep asking, begging, God, why? Why aren't you answering my prayers for a child? And he's thinking, how many negative pregnancy tests do I have to send down before you take a hint? Pastor Skip Heitzik puts it this way. God's no is just as important as his go. Psalm 37.23 says that God orders our steps, but He also orders our stops. God orders our steps and our stops with His no and His go. And we need to listen for both. We need to be open to both, even when we don't like it. Trust He's a good Father, gives good gifts, even the gifts that we don't think to ask for. How about when it comes to our own evangelism? Because that's the context here for Paul, evangelism. You know, the Holy Spirit forbid them from preaching the gospel in Asia. How do you like that? 
I thought the Spirit's whole job was to empower us to preach the Gospel and then to open people's hearts to the message. How about when He doesn't? Right? What about that person for you that you've been praying for, that you've been loving on, that you've been witnessing to for years and years now? That person on your Acts 1-8 prayer initiative right, that you spent yesterday fasting and praying for their salvation, that they would come to know Jesus what if God is closing that door? Not telling you to give up, per se, maybe. Maybe it's a not yet, like Paul's ministry in Asia. You know, interestingly, on the return trip home, we're going to hear that God will later open a door for Paul to preach in Ephesus in Asia. And then on his third missionary journey in chapters 18 through 21, God's going to open the door wide open. Paul's going to be preaching all over Asia. And maybe God will one day open that door for you with that lost loved one on your heart. Or maybe not. But what if in the meantime there are people all around you, dozens, hundreds of other unbelievers, just as desperate in their need for Christ that God wants to use you to reach with the hope and the love of Jesus? Will you accept His closed door for now if it's a possible opportunity for an open window of ministry to others who still need to hear the gospel. And speaking of which, and last point here, number four. Fourth pericope, now we're in Philippi, verses 11 through 15, where God turns the obstacle of disappointment into an unexpected opportunity for gospel witness. Disappointment and opportunity. Verse 11 we hear setting sail from Troas. And here's your map again. They're headed west to Europe. This is the first time the gospel is on European soil now in history. Very significant. Uh, and, and again, don't let that point be missed on us. If God had opened the door south to Asia, north to Bithynia, who knows if the gospel would have ever gone to Europe. And, and all the, the, the expanse of the gospel that took place on the European continent. But eventually they make it to Philippi, which Luke makes sure to note was a leading city of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And so he says we remained in Philippi for some days, for a good long while, because it was an important city filled with influential people. Philippi was considered something of the Rome of the East. And so remember, Paul had been promised by God that he would use Paul to witness to kings and rulers. And so they're lingering here, just waiting, perhaps for another opportunity to, to minister to some influential people, leading people in the city. God might use them in some mighty way, maybe another miraculous healing, perhaps even a stoning. You know, Paul's thinking, hey, I, if I've got to get stoned for, for the governor of of Philippi to be converted, you know, however God wants to convict and call sinners to himself. You know, I just, I just want to maximize my influence for the gospel. But so far, nothing. Soil must be hard. No one in Philippi even cares enough to stone Paul, to listen to him. You know, they're preaching in the, in the Gentile marketplaces and everybody just thinks he's crazy talking about some dead guy that came back from, from, from the dead. They don't even have a concept for it. This thoroughly Jewish, uh, sorry, Gentile town, probably, again, in part, no, no, one, no one's even caring enough to persecute because in part, there wasn't even a synagogue in Philippi that we think. 
According to Jewish tradition, there had to be at least 10 male heads of household before a synagogue could be formed in a city. But apparently, Paul and his team didn't realize that there weren't even 10 Jewish adult males in all of Philippi because we read verse 13 on the Sabbath, having failed to find a synagogue yet, because remember, that's, that's their strategy, right? Go and, and preach, hope to make it to the influential, you know, maybe we get arrested and we get an audience with the governor, or we're going to go to the, we're going to find a synagogue because at least these people, these influential Jews, you know, they, the rabbis and uh, those well-learned in the scriptures, they, they know they're anticipating a Messiah. We can tell them about Jesus, right? It's, it's a natural kind of ministry opportunity if they've already been primed to know that there's a Messiah coming. We'll tell them about Jesus. So they've been looking for the, the synagogue, haven't found it. And so finally on the Sabbath, verse 13, they wander outside the gate to the riverside and search where they supposed there must be a place of prayer. Place of prayer is a common New Testament nickname for a synagogue. Uh, and Jews often worshipped near rivers for purposes of, of ritual cleansing. So they think, well, maybe, maybe they're out by the river. And so here they are thinking, you know what, we, we were hoping to convert some of the influential Gentile rulers. That's kind of the demographic Philippi is known for. But I guess we'll settle for some influential Jews in town instead, if we can even find any. Where are all the Jews? So you can imagine the disappointment then that they must have initially felt when Paul and his team get down to the riverside and they find only a group of women. Now, women, don't mishear me. Uh, don't shoot the messenger. It's just like you've got to read this through first century eyes this morning. Women's, women's testimony wasn't even valid in a court of law. Uh, no status. This is why it was so revolutionary that disciples wouldn't have made up the fact that Mary Magdalene and the other women were the ones who found Jesus' empty tomb first because Jesus validated and, and loved and appreciated women in a way that was totally countercultural for his time. But even you know, his followers, Paul and them here, that, that wasn't the strategy. It wasn't, let's go find a group of women that we can tell about Jesus. Where, where are the movers and the shakers? The rabbis? Where are they? And so you can imagine their disappointment here in verse 13 until they start chatting with Lydia. They figure, hey, we're just going to take it in stride. Maybe this is exactly the person who God brought us here for. Kind of like Philip, who God brought all the way down, remember chapter 8, to preach just to the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe God brought us all the way here just for Lydia. And they discover that she is, in fact, a woman of means. She's a seller of purple goods and the lucrative royal robes industry. But more importantly, she was a worshiper of God. And so the Lord opened her heart to Paul's gospel, and she believes. And she's baptized, along with her whole household. And then she forces her hospitality upon them, the same hospitality that Lydia would come to be known for as she would host the newly birthed church in Philippi in her home, we hear in verse 40. We're going to read next week. And it's the same kind of hospitality and generosity that would come to characterize the entire church of Philippi that she was an uh, influential leader in in the years to come. We read about in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, just how much of an encouragement 
they were to him and their generosity, their, their selfless support financially and, and otherwise of his missionary journeys. Once again, what looks like disappointment from a purely human vantage point becomes opportunity in the hands of an omnipotent God. And so here's where we have to leave it, though, conclusion. It's only in God's hands. That only happens by God's power. None of this happens without God. God is the only one who can turn our division into multiplication, who can turn our exclusion into inclusion, turn closed doors into open windows. God's the only one who turns, in the most ultimate sense, disappointments into opportunities. And friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, you need to hear this. God proved all of that most powerfully on the cross of his son Jesus. Uh, just consider the gospel. Consider what God has done for us on the cross of Jesus. He turned division. Here, Jesus was cut off from the Father, divided, separated into multiplication. He was, cu- he was cut off so that we might be brought near. We might be adopted as sons and daughters of the High King of Heaven. Jesus turned exclusion, we were once excluded from that relationship with a perfect God because of our sin. Now he's turned it into our inclusion. Now because Christ experienced the rejection and the exclusion that we deserve in our sin, now we can be reconciled to God and brought into his family included. God turned a closed door. God, in fact, was the one who closed the door, right? Jesus shattered this Jewish understanding of what the Messiah was going to be. They were expecting a warrior king like David. Right? God slammed that door shut as the disciples watched in horror as Jesus bled out and suffered and suffocated on the cross. Shut that door, but he was opening an even better window instead. God's plan was so much better than what they were expecting. He wasn't just restoring a physical kingdom for all of Israel. God was opening up a spiritual kingdom for all who would believe, Jew and Gentile, to be included. And then finally, Jesus turns all of our disappointments, all of our disappointments. Imagine the heartbreak of Jesus' disciples as they stood there and they beheld him on the cross. We thought you were the one. We gave up our lives for, you, for this. Imagine the disappointment. But now imagine the exaltation as they beheld his resurrected body three days later. And the opportunity that God brought out of despair, out of disappointment. Because they knew now everything he said was true. It was the validation of everything he had told them. And they knew now, if he can come back to life from the dead, then it's true. What he said is true, and we can too, if we repent of our sins and believe in him. Is that true of you this morning? Is that your story? Death to life, disappointment to opportunity for a new and better life you never could have imagined. Heaven open to you. If it's not yet, it can be. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and you can be saved.